Sherlock Bond, James Holmes. James Bond is the spies, but Sherlock Holmes is the detectives. Let's journey into this dark London world together and see what clues we can find. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzato. At SpyMovieNavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans. Spy movie podcasts, videos, discussions, and more. So, Dan, Sherlock Bond, James Hall, wh- yeah. wh- what are you talking about? What are we talking about today? Hey, today we're going to do some sleuthing around London. Uh, metaphorically, of course, that is, because uh, we're, we're here in Chicago. But Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who obviously wrote all the Sherlock Holmes stories, and Ian Fleming, they created, of course, some of the best-known literary characters the world has ever known. I mean, these guys are huge, right? James Bond and Sherlock Holmes. So Sherlock Holmes and Bond both made the leap from these great literary novels and short stories onto the big screens, and the world has never been the same since. So today we're going to take a look at how they are similar and some things where they're not so similar. I've always been a big Sherlock Holmes fan. I've read the four novels and 56 short stories that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. And when Bond came to the big screen in 1962 with Dr. No, shortly thereafter from Russia with Love came out, and then Goldfinger, three years in a row like that, I was hooked on Bond as well. And, you know, I like to collect a lot of stuff, Tom. So I actually have Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's autograph as well. Yeah. I've seen that. Is that cool? That is It's really on cool. a little piece of paper from a, a London hotel where he's writing a note to someone that's going to be delivered at another hotel. It's pretty cool. Now, do you have Ian Fleming's? No, I don't have Ian Fleming's. i got to get Ian Fleming's. I actually asked the Ian Fleming Foundation people about that, and they said they didn't have any for sale. They All said, right. you got to look around. I was like, oh, okay. But I want one. So if anybody out there uh, has one, authentic, of course, let me know. Sherlock Holmes has been in print since *The Study in Scarlet* was published in 1887. Yeah, 1887. 18, I almost said so, 19 there. I know. So he's been he's been sleuthing around for 130 years, which is unreal. Yeah, and and Bond's been spying now for what 65 years. Yeah, and is as popular today as ever. Yeah. So these two guys have made it. I mean, they're. I don't think the uh, Arthur Conan Doyle stuff has been out of print since 1887 which is amazing. That is amazing. 130 years, this stuff is still being printed and bought and purchased e- through eBooks, regular print books and everything else. And, and then it makes Bond. And then it gets to the TV and the movies. Yes. Bond comes in, they did the one TV show and then the rest of them have been movies. Yeah. But yeah, for, we'll talk about that with uh, Holmes later too, that it's radio, television, plays, everything with Sherlock Holmes. Unbelievable. 130 years of popularity. Still going. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a medical doctor. And so what's he doing writing about Holmes here? Where did he get this concept from? Well, he had this professor, Joseph Bell, who was amazing at treating patients. And he would use his deductive powers and analytical skills to analyze what was wrong with a patient and come up with a plan. And to Arthur Conan Doyle's surprise and everyone else's, this guy was usually right. He would do this stuff without examining pain he would look at this look at the different details of the symptoms and everything else there oh this is what's wrong with and he was right most of the time and so arthur conan doyle was like wow if that approach was applied to 
detective work, it would be amazing. And so that's how we got the concept that that whole idea should be applied to the detective world. And in the non-detective world, in the medical world, it sounds to me a lot like the plot of House, the TV show that was here in the U.S., where you know the doctor would come up with these crazy scenarios and using his deduction figure out what was wrong with a patient when nobody else could figure out what was going on. Yeah, so this Joseph Bell did what Sherlock Holmes was going to do later on as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle developed the concept of Holmes. So this real-life experience was, was huge. And the same thing with Fleming. Fleming did learn a lot from his whole naval intelligence operations that he was in and his experience and his boss, this guy, Rear Ad- Admiral John Godfrey. So Fleming's real-life experience contributed immensely to what he developed in terms of James Bond's character, personality, and way of doing things, his methodologies, and the detail, all the detailed stories that surround Bond as we know Bond today. In real life, again, Fleming would create, as the naval intelligence person, espionage plans, and he created a 30 assault unit of commandos. That's what it was called, 30 assault unit, and they were made up of specialized intelligence troops. So this was happening in his real life. So both Fleming and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle drew heavily from their real-world experience and real-world mentors. And the, the, the experiences were different, right? Because, you know, Conan Doyle was looking at it from the deductive reasoning side of things that Joseph Bell was helping him with, where Fleming was writing Bond. There was a lot less deductive reasoning and more just sleuthing. Yeah, but again, though, the, the same concept is there is they're both trying to solve problems. Yeah, right? that's true. And and so Bond's got his problems he's got to solve, whether he's got to go kill this guy in Jamaica or whatever he's got to do and how to do that. And then Holmes is more cerebral than Bond, but still solving problems. So they're both solving problems, and so that's why they're kind of very similar. No, I, I agree with you there. So everyone says that, Sherlock Holmes would not have been successful without his main sidekick, Dr. Watson, who theoretically wrote all the stories about what Sherlock Holmes did to solve cases and so on. Yeah, he was the scribe to the, what was going on. Yeah, and he plays important roles in the stories too because he, as a medical doctor, he helps Holmes sometimes with with uh, you know, what when this guy died, oh yeah, this guy died three hours ago, whatever, so Holmes could figure out other stuff. But Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in real life is a medical doctor, so he knows what he's writing about when he's writing for Watson as the guy who's telling all the stories about Holmes. So he has the experience in real life. So again, this medical knowledge was a natural for, for Doyle to write about. So Holmes was really like Professor Joseph Bell and Watson was like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, now, James Bond, though, he, he doesn't get that close sidekick, you know, at least on an ongoing basis. You might say uh, CIA's... Maybe Felix yeah, Leiter. Felix yeah. Leiter yeah. Might, might come close. Yeah. But the character of Bond was, for the most part, a compilation of real-world espionage personnel Fleming grew to know in his time in the naval intelligence, including the Serbian double agent Dusko Popov, who was codenamed Tricycle to the British and Scoot to the Germans. I love those code names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah he was a double agent, and uh, Fleming used to meet with him in Portugal, actually, during World War II. So, 
I mean, this is real stuff, and it was really happening. And actually, Tom and I, we were at the Palacio Hotel in Estril, Portugal, and we're sitting in the very bar where Fleming sat with uh, Popoff at one point. And <laughs> right next door is the casino, yes. and Popoff was supposedly a really skilled Baccarat player. Yes, and that's where Fleming saw him win a lot of money, and one of the reasons that in Casino Royale, Bond is in a casino. Yeah, and exactly. Gambling. And in the books, it's Bacharach, Amandafur, however you want to say that. Yeah. Right? In in the Fleming books, where when we did Casino Royale, or when they did Casino Royale as a movie most recently by Ian Productions, they changed it from Bacharach to Texas Hold'em, just because that was what was more popular at the time. Yeah. And at that little bar at the uh, at Palacio Hotel in uh, Sturil, Portugal, where Fleming and Popoff used to meet, there was, we read, we did a little research, of course, and they used to sit at a table near a door so that can, if they had to get out real quickly, they can get out real quickly. So when Tom and I were there, the only entryway into the place was from the lobby. And we thought, well, he's not sitting next to the lobby. But then there was a doorway leading to some terrace kind of thing, but it was enclosed and it wasn't an exit. Look, didn't look like yeah, a real exit. It looked exit. like a, more of a conjoining between the restaurant and the bar kind yeah, of a thing. Yeah, so we walked out there, Tom and I, and we looked at the floor, and the floor was kind of worn, kind of worn uh, blocks, concrete or whatever. It looked like it was worn out from weather and stuff like that. So we went back in and we talked to the bartender. And we said, was this open at one time, and an exit? And, and she said, yeah, we just enclosed it about eight or nine years ago. It's like, ah! And that's, that's so exactly where why. they sat. So we figured out where they sat, and so we had a uh, Vesper martini there, which, by the way, were... I do believe we had more than one. Very good. They were The awesome. first one I remember. <laughs> they, are, they were awesome there. Now, besides the Baccarat and the, uh, Baccarat and the, um, the Vesper martinis in the bar, Fleming also attributed many of things he liked in his real life. So the fast cars. I mean, yeah. Fleming really liked the Sea Island cotton shirts, and quite honestly, he how can them. you not like those? Yeah, he wore those all the time, and Fleming. Elegance in general, he incorporated that into Bond. So both authors infused their main characters with dimensions of themselves, and both authors were, of course, very well-educated. All right, here, here's another interesting similarity, really, between Doyle and Fleming. And I'm just going to call him Doyle now once in a while. I'm going to call him Doyle, even though he's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And, you know, once in a while. We're That's a mouthful him. when you're doing a whole yeah. podcast. Yeah. It's, it's Sir Sean Connery, too, but sometimes we just call him Sean Connery. You know, so. Doyle was originally going to name Sherlock Sharon Ford Holmes, and Watson was going to be called Ormond Sacker. Well, it turned out to be Sherlock and Dr. John H. Watson, which is uh, the stuff we're familiar with. And those other ones sound sound bizarre to us right now when you say it like this. But imagine if we were sitting here saying, oh, Sharonford Holmes, like it was just trippingly running off of our, our, our tongues. Yeah, or he was going to call him Sherlock. Can you imagine? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is what you get used to, just like Disney World. You know, it's like, what if it was Sylvester World, you know? Hey. So how, how, how is that a similarity between Doyle and Fleming? Well, in, in, good question. In 1952, there was a draft of Casino Royale. This is when Fleming was writing Casino Royale. And he reveals Bond's alternate, albeit cover name. It was going to be James Secretin. No, wait a minute. We went down to the Lilly Library at Indiana University, and we looked at the manuscripts. It wasn't in that. 
No, it was not in the version of Casino Royale draft that we went over page by page, by the way, and actually took photographs of every page so we can go back and look at it again anytime yeah, we and want. And Secretan isn't in there. Secretan is not in there. Oh, by the way, the Lily Library where we went, they own 11 of the original James Bond manuscripts by Fleming, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is really neat. Yeah, and we, we went through all of them page by page, which is great. So we've wondered, why does James Bond almost always use his real name? Because we everybody that you talk to says, yeah, he's always introducing himself as Bond. And in The Spy Who Loved Me, she gets all mad about you know, yeah, exactly. The, the triple X is like, you, know, you just gave him your real name. He's like, yeah, they know me already. It's like, <laughs> well, why? So everyone asks the same question. Well, there is an answer. Drumroll, please. There you go. In an article by Susanna Lazarus on April 15, 2013, she quotes Fleming's niece, Kate Grimmond, as saying this, Ian must have realized it would cause confusion if he had Bond known as Bond to his friends and the security services in London, but as Secretan for his cover name to strangers or people he didn't want to know that he was a spy. So when you're wondering about this the next time, remember this. Though we don't think this makes a whole lot of sense, since even Bond's friend Mathis in the movie Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, it comes out that Mathis was his cover name, so you could see Mathis's death scene in Quantum of Solace for this tidbit. Now, now, Dan, you and I have actually sat around in bars talking about this, yeah. and it's <laughs> it's interesting to me because you've got Sir Arthur Conan Doyle doing Sherlock Holmes using his real name. He might have had a different name instead of Sherlock Holmes, but it wasn't going to be a cover name. It was right. going to be his name. No. Bond almost got a cover name. Yeah, Secretan. Yeah, and now Jason Bourne, it was a cover name for David Webb. Yeah, he had a cover name. And as far as I can tell, Ethan Hunt doesn't have a cover name either. Ah. So you've got Bond, Hunt, and Holmes all using their real names. Jason Bourne uses a cover name. Mathis uses a cover name. Yeah. Seems kind of all over the place as to how these get used or not used. Yeah, yeah. Within the Bond world, when his niece said that, I thought, oh, okay. When I first read it, I thought, that, that makes some sense that there would be confusion. And there would be. For the reader, it would be like, absolutely. Eh, what, what's, what's the deal here? And so it's easier to just call him James Bond everywhere. But then you have in the movie Mathis with a cover name. That's his, because Bond asked him, that was your cover name, right? And he said, yeah. Yeah, and, and Jason <laughs> Bourne, it's obvious in the first film that yes. that may not be his name because he's got these passports with all these different names. Right. And, so he, and he doesn't really remember his name. But it works out okay. It's not really the focus of his name. And it's not like he says to one person, oh, I'm Jason Bourne. And then when he talks to another group of people, he's David Webb. He's not yeah. using it as a cover name. Right. Yeah. And then eventually he comes out, of course, his real name is David Webb. Yep. So. Use of name's kind of interesting. Yeah. So in total, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote four novels in 56 short stories over 40 years, while Ian Fleming wrote 14 works, two of which were collections of short stories, in about 14 years. And after the deaths of each, their characters lived on through authorized novels and continuation stories by various authors, approved by their relative estates, and some not approved, actually. Some of the Conan Doyle ones. So, like the Conan Doyle estate approved a novel in 2011 
to be written about Sherlock Holmes, and that was the first approved since 1915, which was the last canonical novel by Doyle himself when that was published. So it's a little weird because all the Sherlock Holmes stuff has been out there, and only one has been approved since 1915. Yeah, where where if you look at if you look at Bond. You've got the Ian Fleming Foundation approving, you know, a bunch of different continuation writers. Yeah, even Fleming, Ian Fleming Publications now used to be Glidrose, I believe. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and so they they've actually approved these continuation authors to keep that story going, right. it, without this huge gap in time. It was actually fairly quickly after Fleming died they they started letting that happen. Yeah, we're gonna actually have a podcast in the in the future with Raymond Benson, one of the continuation. James Bond authors who wrote six James Bond novels and three novelizations of Pierce Brosnan movies, Bond movies. Continuing in this vein, in January 2014, a Chicago judge ruled that Holmes was out of copyright protection, meaning that anyone can write stories about Sherlock Holmes now. Wow. Unless this ruling is overturned, then it's going to stand. So we've not heard anything about it being overturned since... But if you're thinking about maybe writing a Sherlock Holmes story, maybe you better check it out for yourself. Yeah, you don't want to spend all that time writing one and being told, eh, not really. Yeah, copyright laws in the U.S. have continuously been extended, and I think the last we heard it was like 70 years past the death of the author, right? Yeah, that's it. Right so now. you better check if you're thinking of writing a Sherlock Holmes one. Yeah, it's interesting because like with some of the movies and stuff, you see things like when um, the, the Wizard of Oz came out of copyright protection. You had all these commercials which had snippets from the movie in there, and they actually drew some pretty bad backlash here in the U.S., so that, that stopped pretty quickly. Oh. Regardless, both Sherlock Holmes and James Bond have survived their respective authors' deaths through many additional books, short stories, movies, plays, radio adaptations, and more by many different actors. The first Sherlock Holmes radio show was in 1937 starring Louis Hector. Clive Brook played the first speaking Holmes in film. And Basil Rathbone did 14 Sherlock Holmes movies. He, he was my favorite Holmes in, in the movies. He was, yeah, he was but there have been a good. lot of people who have played Holmes. Yeah. Even the new Sherlock Holmes TV series, Sherlock, with... Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch is, is excellent, and it kind of modernizes the whole Sherlock Holmes thing. But there's been a ton of them. But, you know, one interesting guy who played Holmes... In a 1976 made-for-television movie called Sherlock Holmes in New York was Roger Moore. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I like that. Roger Moore. This was in between The Man with the Golden Gun and The Spy Who Loved Me. So in between 1974 and The Man with the Golden Gun and the 1977 The Spy Who Loved Me, Roger Moore was in Sherlock Holmes in New York. So Bond as Holmes. How about During that the time for a he's connection? playing Bond. That's cool. Yeah. Many different actors played Sherlock Holmes, and so far, through Eon Productions' official James Bond 007 movies, only six different men have played James Bond. But the similarities are there. The characters live on. We have a link on our website, too. If you want to see Roger Moore playing Sherlock Holmes in Sherlock Holmes in New York, you can watch the entire show uh, through the link on our website. You know, the funny thing is both these characters are fictional, of course, and... The the crazy thing is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle used to get letters from people asking for Sherlock Holmes's autograph or if Holmes could help them with a case. That's crazy. I mean, 
I, I actually watched some documentaries where you you see actually hear Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. They're filming him telling about this, and he's like baffled. It's like I couldn't believe it. You know, can I get Can I get Sherlock Holmes autograph? Yeah. that's hilarious. Yeah, and some were for Watson's autograph and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think anybody thinks James Bond is a real character, but you know, in this crazy world, uh, who knows? Maybe somebody does. <laughs> I get James Bond's autograph. Yeah. Well, you. Let, I'll sign one for you. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> now I do have a couple of autographs of uh, people who have played Bond. I've got uh, Sean Connery's and Pierce Brosnan's, but it's them. It's not Bond. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Fleming signing it, Bond. <laughs> yeah. For Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he never dreamt he'd be writing so many stories about Sherlock Holmes. After a study in Scarlet, his first novel, he thought he was finished. Doyle really wanted to write historical novels, medieval stuff, but Holmes was in demand, and he wrote for money. Like Fleming said, he did. Yeah, in, in 1891, he actually, this is four years after his first Holmes publication, he wrote to his mother saying that he was thinking of killing off Holmes. And basically, because Holmes, he said, was ruling ruling his life he couldn't write all his medieval stuff he wanted to write and his mother said no no don't do that good advice mom yeah but in 1893 a couple of years later doyle wrote the final problem and in that story both holmes and his arch enemy moriarty plunge off a cliff at reichenbach falls to their deaths really i was gonna say that that was I guess they didn't really die. Yeah. But similarly, I mean, Fleming did something like this too, right? In From Russia with Love, at the end of the novel, he's left poisoned by Club, and you don't know if he's going to survive or not. It's unknown at the end of that novel whether Bond is going to live because it ends with him being poisoned. Yeah, and, and and you only live twice. He the, he ends that with Bond as a fisherman, with amnesia. Yeah, Jason, Jason Bourne, may, Jason Bourne, maybe. Yeah, well, I'm and, saying yeah. There, there's so, there, there's a there's a hint right there, right? Yeah. So is this an, is this another way to get out of Bond? I mean, were these characters torturing these authors, where it's like I just got to go do something else, but the money keeps rolling in when I do this Bond or this Holmes thing. Because everyone who wants to ever be an author would dream like, this is so ideal, right? One one after another, you're writing this stuff. And these guys who were really writing, I was like, I went out of this, especially Doyle. He definitely wanted out of it. Well, yeah, he he wanted out of it. But after he has them fall, you know, off the falls there, he receives such an outcry from his fans that they were like, come on, bring Holmes back. We want more Holmes. The fans wouldn't accept his death. Yeah, the fans would not accept his death. So yeah, so so Doyle, yeah, so Doyle, he was feeling trapped to keep Holmes alive, right? I mean, it's like these fans are like, keep him going, keep him going. So he resurrects Holmes in 1903 after ten years, ten years, and writes Holmes stories until the last one was published in two, in 1927. Uh, yeah. All right, in the next part of the podcast, we're going to take a look at how Holmes and Bond relate one to the other, how they're similar, how they may be dissimilar. So the first point really we want to say is that all modern detective stories, it's been written, and this is pretty much fact, 
all modern detective stories began with Sherlock Holmes. And we at spymovienavigator.com, we contend that every spy movie since Bond must tip its hat to Ian Productions for doing the Bond movies. Yeah, we're, we're not saying that Bond was the first spy movie or no. the first spy book, but everything, most of the spy movies that have been done since Bond was created really do take some of their... Uh, their roots. Their roots from the Bond world. Yeah. Holmes was a social genius before social media, meaning he knew how to move through society to help solve his cases. Through his Baker Street Irregulars. Yeah, that was the bunch of kids he had out there, uh, kind of street urchins, really, yeah, going to get information doing the from work them. For and him. he'd pay them a little money, and they'd come back and do stuff for him. Yep, so he'd use them, he'd use disguises, he'd use science. Now, Bond was a spy genius. He knew what to do in most situations. But there's a huge difference. Holmes did not fail often, even in the subplots. He was beaten by the woman. Irina Adler. Yeah, but not in many other episodes. Bond never really fails in his ultimate goal, but in the subplots, a lot of people he touches die. They die. Right? In Goldfinger, for example, Jill Masterson and her sister, Tilly Masterson, both die after Bond got involved with them. Holmes doesn't lose too many comrades along the way, if any. All right, Holmes had some fighting skills, as he was very good with boxing. He had very strong hands. Take a look at the adventure of the Speckled Band, where he says he unbent the fireplace poker. That had to be hard to do. Yeah, he's a swift runner. He's got some martial arts skills, as he makes reference to the in the empty another story, the empty house, that he has some knowledge of bartitsu, which is some type of Japanese martial arts. Actually, kind of a combination of modified. What? Kind of a combination. Oh, yeah. Combination of many. Some type of Japanese martial arts. Actually, a combination of many Japanese martial arts modified by a man, Edward William Barton Wright, which is kind of the combination of his name, Bart and Jujitsu. So it's Bartitsu. Though I believe Conan Doyle calls it Baritsu in the story. I don't know why. He's also good with a sword and stick fighting. So in short, he can take care of himself if necessary. So you don't really think that way about Holmes a lot because you think he's just a cerebral guy. But he is very physical and can take care of himself. Yeah, he's not constantly pulling out a uh, Walter PPK with a silencer on the end of it. Yeah, unlike Bond, he rarely carried a weapon. But he's nonetheless a skilled shot, as is evidenced in the story The Musgrave Ritual, where he shoots the Victorian Regina insignia in the wall. So Mrs. Hudson, his landlady, was thrilled about that. Yeah, this is exactly. in this little flat. You know, it's like, yeah, thanks. And he shocks always Watson with the oh, gunfire. What is that? And, oh, I'm just practicing. It's like, oh. Anyway, so he was really a good shot. Bond is well-trained in martial arts and always carries a weapon. However, in terms of intellect, I think you have to say Holmes has the edge which is why he most often did not have to fight. His powers of deduction were baffling to all, his mind superior to any other literary mind, except maybe for Mycroft, his brothers, who was supposedly even, even better. Yeah, even smarter with the stuff. Smarter than Holmes. Yep. So both are men who could take care of themselves in a fight, whether with guns or hand-to-hand. In a chaotic London in the late 1800s, with Jack the Ripper, Sherlock Holmes was a beacon of sanity and hope. 
Now, every Bond story paints a chaotic world scene as well, some more chaotic than others. And we develop our opinion of James Bond also as a beacon of hope for our times. And both Bond and Holmes lived in London. That's uh, Bond's headquarters was London. Of course, he travels all over the world. Holmes got out of London, too, to exotic places for the time, like France and Switzerland. He traveled the world extensively for three years when the world thought he was dead after the final problem incident where he falls off Reichenbach Falls. Bond, of course, mostly gets out of London and has been all over the world. The movies continue to focus on exotic locales like Bond 25 returning to Jamaica. Yeah, and I, I love the, the Switzerland thing because Bond goes to Switzerland, Switzerland a couple times. And actually, the On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Pete's Gloria, is actually not that far from the falls where uh, Mor- where Moriarty, yeah, Rickenbaugh Falls, where uh, Moriarty and uh, Holmes fight it. <laughs> Holmes, of course, worked for himself and for whatever client he accepted. Bond, of course, is a public servant working for MI6, a blunt instrument of the government, as Fleming once described him. Holmes answers to no one but himself. Bond must always answer to M. Yes, and there's many, many scenes of that. Of him answering to M. M. Exactly. Now, in real life, Holmes had a great influence on real police work. It's amazing, actually. He studied forensics, for example, before there was forensics. (laughs) Exactly. Creating a new field as as a character in a novel. Yeah. Again, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's medical background aids in him writing about this stuff before people actually did it on the police forces. So forensics is one example, but he did ballistics analysis, chemical analysis, handwriting analysis, autopsies, microscopic examination, blood analysis, and going undercover with disguises, all these things before police forces actually did them. That's kind of cool. Yeah, a, a fictional character actually guides what police end up doing. Yeah. It's uh, it is stunning. It's kind of like Star Trek, you know, all the things that are coming around now. He's like, oh, that was all in Star Trek uh, shows and stuff, and now it's coming to be. This guy was like predicting the future <laughs> techniques for police forces with a fictional character. It's stunning. Really. I'm st- I'm still waiting to be able to be beamed up from Star Trek. Yeah, <laughs> beam me up, Scotty. There are a lot of shows about the real Sherlock Holmes that go into how he impacted criminal investigations forever. Yeah, now, now Bond, on the other hand, he has special skills that were pertinent to his line of work as a spy. He was MI6's best gambler. Yeah. He knew cars. He was its best shot. And he was a very quick thinker. He could outguess opponents, etc. For Holmes, science was omnipotent, and reason could solve problems. Yeah, for Bond, though, it was finesse, strength, winning people over, and killing skills. A lot of good killing skills. Did did Bond influence anything in the real spy world? I'm, I'm not really sure that I would say. It was more the opposite. Although the rebreather he uses in Thunderball, I love that story. We've told it before, yeah. where he could stay submerged underwater and breathe for a set number of minutes. Three or four minutes, yeah. yeah. That was in the movie, right? But it got the attention of the, the, the British military. Uh, the production crew actually got a call from them. Um, asking them about this rebreather thing. Yeah, I think it was Peter Lamont. Yeah, they, yeah, and they asked him, you know, how do you build that thing and how long can you stay, stay submerged with it? The answer through the prop man was, as long as you can hold your breath. Yeah. 
So they created something for Bond that the real life military wanted that was just a, a prop where Conan Doyle was actually creating whole whole new lines of work that police the police forces could, could use in their investigations. Yeah, many techniques that work their way into police forces that are still being used today. That's, that's, amazing. that's amazing. From 1897. Well, not just from 1897, but that it was a novel. It wasn't yeah. It wasn't some, you know, uh, nonfiction thing that he was writing. Right. You know, there's similarities, really. When you look at Sherlock Holmes, he had very few outside interests and really had no friends other than dear old Watson. He was devoted to his detective work. He had no genuine interest in art, great food, politics, and so on. And he used drugs. He used cocaine. Yeah, he played the violin. And occasionally, he and Watson went to the theater or to a concert. But these weren't big passions of his. He spent his time doing his detective work. Most of his time was dedicated to advancing that knowledge of his detection. He was doing experiments, writing monographs, which are papers or theses, on various topics like tobacco and so on, updating his files, etc. This is what he did with his spare time. Although he kept an eye on the politics and the art and stuff and that he, he understood it and he, he could recognize different things. There was a couple with art that uh, he knew some stuff about that was kind of surprising given that really wasn't one of his passions. Oh, he's a, he's a, uh, a, a tremendous reader. He reads the papers, he reads everything and, and files things away so that he knows about everything. He knows about artists, he knows about music, he knows about all this stuff, but it wasn't one of those things that he'd go out and do this all the time and say, like, hey, we got to go do this, this is fun. It was more of an educational exercise. Yeah, exactly. And we know that after Holmes retires, he takes up beekeeping in the countryside. Now, keep in mind, we know Holmes only through Watson, and that friendship between Watson and Holmes is the greatest friendship in literature, and everyone Whoever reads Sherlock Holmes, anyone who criticizes the Sherlock Holmes, who analyzes it, says it would have never worked. He would never, Holmes would never have been as popular if Watson wasn't the character had to delivering it. the stories. You had to see it through somebody else's eyes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's just brilliant. Yeah. Now, now, Bond in his world was very similar. At one point, when he was asked if that is a friend, he quips, I have no friends. Yeah. His only true interest was in cars, and he loved his Bentley in the books and other faster cars like the Aston Martin DB5 in the movies. So both were similar. Bond was also very dedicated to his job, and both, we think, were a little out of touch with the day-to-day -day world around them. Yeah, I think that's a true statement. Right, so so neither of these guys really had friends except for Watson for Holmes, but, and Bond didn't really have any friends, but that was about it. But they had their arch enemies. They had their enemies. Bond and Sherlock Holmes each had their arch enemies. For Holmes, it was Professor Moriarty, which they describe as the Napoleon of crime. And for Bond, it was Blofeld, Smirsch, Spectre. Professor Moriarty was the intellectual equal of Holmes, but on the criminal side. And a lot of Bond's villains, including Blofeld, right, are equally clever as Bond. Though they never really just shoot him to kill him. It just always cracks You would up. think that would be part of their smartness. Yeah. But the professor didn't just kill Sherlock Holmes either, though he tried at times to do so. In the actual Doyle stories, Moriarty really only appeared twice. He was only featured twice. 
but was given a greater role in the subsequent stories, television and radio adaptations, and the movies. Yeah, they seem to do that with these characters, these ancillary characters, if you will, from the books. I mean, even Bond does that with I mean, Money Penny. Very little bit about Money Penny in the books. Yet she's she's in almost every Bond movie. Yeah, the funny thing is she's in almost every Bond movie. But I was just looking at Roger Moore's uh, book Bond on Bond, and there's a paragraph about Money Penny in there, and says even though she appeared, I think, in 14 films, he said she appears on camera for a total of 20 minutes. And with 200 words or less, That's ever, a, and everybody knows Money Penny. Everybody knows this Money is Penny. how powerful these tangent characters can be. Anyway, that's a great book to check it out. Bond on Bond by uh, Roger Moore, Sir Roger Moore. Though half a century apart, we don't think Holmes and Bond lived too close to each other geographically. Holmes was on Baker Street, the far end of Baker Street, and Bond somewhere in Chelsea. And we're thinking they're probably like 12 miles apart or that's so. Just un- that's just under 20 kilometers. Yeah, under 20 kilometers apart. So, again, we looked at a map and we tried to figure out where Holmes and Bond lived and just for another similarity there. And then we look at what did Holmes look like? Sidney Paget's illustration in the Strand magazine sent the image for Holmes forever. Tall, thin, pronounced nose, long, lanky fingers, Basil Rathbone was like the perfect fit for Sherlock Holmes' films. Yeah, where, where Fleming describes Bond is looking like Hoagie Carmichael. Yes. Gen- generally, he's considered to be about six foot tall, a slim build, a scar on his right cheek, which never made it in the movies, yeah. blue-gray eyes, a cruel mouth, short black hair, a comma of which rests on his forehead. Some similarities, though. Holmes is much taller. Both have stern looks. Yeah, the scar... Uh, they moved the scar to the lower back. Remember in From Russia with Love? Oh, that's Tat- right. Yeah. Tatiana is looking for it on his uh, lower back when they were in bed there. So the scar's still there, but yeah, it doesn't appear on his face and so on. But again, some similarities and some differences. Holmes always said, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Yeah, he also says there's nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Right. <laughs> what he meant by that is, of course, you can't jump to conclusions. That's really what he meant by that. Okay. You know, if you study Holmes, that's that's this is how he thinks. You see something that's obvious, you can't jump to the conclusion because now your data has to match your theory. That data might be wrong, misleading, and so on. That's that's good. I'm glad you brought that up, Tom. Now, Bond. You can't say he has the same kind of theory stuff here going on, but he, he kind of does act on this premise as well because he this is what he does in his job every day. He's collecting data through observation, and he's acting on it. He's following leads. He's doing whatever he has to do to fulfill his mission and be successful in his mission. The premise follows the thread of data to the theory and ultimately the solution for both. All right, here's a little tidbit. We know when we watch movies like Bond, we love a good chase scene. But actually, Holmes in The Sign of Four and James Bond in The World Is Not Enough, they had chase scenes on the Thames in London. So we actually have chase scenes by both of these guys at the same place on the Thames in London. All right, Dan. So lastly, was Holmes a spy? 
You know, that that's a good question. I mean, mostly he's a detective and he calls himself a consulting detective, the only one in the world. But there are very th- there's there's various theories about this because he did work for his brother Mycroft, who was a very high up person in the British government. They never really said what Mycroft did. Not exactly clear what Mycroft did, but at one point Sherlock Holmes claims that my brother Mycroft remains the most indispensable man in the country. The Adventures of the Bruce Partington Papers story. In that story, plans were stolen for a secret submarine, and so Holmes was brought in to solve this case. Was he doing spy work there? It sounds like he was. Bond is always doing spy work, but Holmes is mostly doing his consulting detective stuff and generally not involved in international intrigue, but sometimes he is. So is he? I don't know. I don't think so. I wouldn't call him a spy, but at some point and sometimes he does spy work. He does spy work. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you that. Of course, James Bond lives on through the additional authorized James Bond novels with the approval of Ian Fleming publications and through the Eon Productions James Bond 007 movies. There've been 24 to date with Bond 25 in the works as we speak. Bond is spying in his 66th year already. Yeah, and Sherlock Holmes has been the subject of like 120 novels since the death of Doyle. Hundreds of films and information segments about Holmes, radio adaptations, live plays, a whole bunch of stuff. Holmes is in his 132nd year now of sleuthing. So if you like Sherlock Holmes, check out a nice website, everythingsherlock.com. All this makes us believe more than ever that James Bond is to spies what Sherlock Holmes is to detectives. That's how big Bond is. We hope you enjoyed sleuthing and spying with us today. Please keep coming back to our website at spymovienavigator.com. Download our podcasts and spy with us. Thanks for listening. This is Dan Silvestri and Tom Pizzotto with spymovienavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans, spy movie podcasts, videos, discussions, and more.